All right, so 1 Timothy 3, uh, I'm talking about meeting the needs of the local church. And uh, I want to start off by thinking about something that we do every Sunday is um, we have, a, we have a, an order of worship. Um, and so how many of you could tell me what are the things that we do without looking at it like a bulletin? Um, what are the things that we do every week? Uh, in our normal church service. Okay, hold on, hold on. How many of you guys think you could name them out? Like, you're like, I think I could probably, you know, list all of the things that we do in order. In order, yeah. So, so, it's not a trick question. There, there is a, there is a, would you say that we have a very patterned order of service? Okay, so, the timer, yeah, so, first, the slides come up, yeah, yeah, so, I feel like this is a relatively new thing, uh, I don't know, how long would you say the three minute countdown has been? A few months, okay, alright, so, what's the first thing that we do? Okay, alright, so, alright, so, sing, or you could say song, alright, okay, so then we have uh, greet visitors, announcements, yeah. Okay, and then what's next? Sing. How many songs do we typically do? Four, five. We have five between between the greeting and the next thing. Hey, 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 I don't, no Cliff's notes. I told you, no cheating. All right, so. <laughs> All right, so sing, how many? Let's say we do one. Or you just say Lisa, maybe. All right, maybe four, maybe four. Okay, and then what's next? Okay. All right, so where does scripture and prayer come in? Between each? No. Okay. Prayers kind of kind of <laughs> sprinkled in. Some sprinkle in prayer. All right. All right. Well, let's let's do kind of the the weekly typical. Uh, all right. Is that come? Is it between a song or is it after the four songs? Okay. All right. Scripture and then prayer. Okay. Okay. Uh, off. <laughs> Offering. <laughs> There's an E in there. Uh, the offing. <laughs> Offering. Uh, and that's done, done during a song. Okay. And then. All right. Uh, sermon or message, and then what's anything else? And then song, but kind of like part of a song, right? It's like a, a verse of a song, perhaps. Okay, so so that's some of the typical, right? That you do now. Has anyone been to another church that does something different? Okay, 
So, and typically, if you go to a different church, if you go to, if you were to go to another church, do you think it would have like the same elements in a row, like the way it's listed out? All right. What about some of the elements that are here listed, but maybe in a different format or different numbers? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you have that. Um, you have. The Episcopal Church has uh, uh, communion every Sunday. Okay. So I feel like this, the Presbyterian Church that you went to, do they do it every Sunday? Or that you that you'd gone to? I feel like most Presbyterian churches I've been to I, I've never did. Okay. Okay. Every Sunday, yeah. The ones that I have visited have been every Sunday, and I think it's that was part of their their thing. Um, we had to in seminary go to different churches and kind of you know experience their services, and it was it was also kind of like thinking through like. And we even I think for one of my classes, like what would be like your order of worship? That's what they would call this, the order of worship. Uh, Sarah and I went to a church that. Um, they did all of their, actually they started with the sermon. I feel like they did like a greeting and, you know, announcements. They did the sermon and then they did their singing afterwards because they said that they felt like after you had your sermon, your mind was ready then to worship God, you know, because they explained that. Why do we do that in the way that we do that? And I was like, it's interesting. So, um, but anyway, we get kind of patterned. So who's right? (laughs) That's (laughs) right. <laughs> so I bring that up just as kind of an example of of saying like, well, this is the way we do it, and we do kind of become creatures of habit, right? That you know, that largely, right? We do we will do, um, uh, you know, the Lord's table or some other updates on when things happen. It usually fits within kind of this structure, um, but we usually don't deviate too far from it. If we deviated too far from it, what do you, how do you think people would respond? What if one Sunday Shane was like, "We're gonna, I'm gonna preach today, and then we're gonna do all our singing at the end." Do you think you'd all be fine with that, or would you be like, "Whoa, whoa"? I mean, is that right? Is that the, you know that doesn't seem right, right? So <clears throat> I don't say like that's that's you know right or wrong. So there's there's different different things that go go into it, and um, and uh, you know I want us to kind of have that as like the the background for what we're gonna talk about today. When we kind of talk about you know leadership and different roles and things like that, um, so we're we're in First Timothy three, and uh, we've pretty much finished most of First Timothy three. Though there's a little section at the end, I think it's going to be good. We'll get to that in a little bit um, to kind of wrap our heads around uh, what what we're going to talk about. Um, but re- last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw that those who serve in the church are sometimes referred to as deacons or Ministers, but that idea is those who serve, or servants is also how it can be translated. And Paul said, he, um, who also described himself as a minister or a servant of the gospel, uh, kind of ascribes high character qualities um, for those that serve as they carry out the necessary tasks in the church to make it function effectively. Now, Paul just kind of talks about these I, these people as overseers and as deacons or servants, 
um, and the character qualities that they should possess as Timothy is looking out for these types of people. And again, in a role of leadership, they're at a church that already has those that are functioning as overseers, even calling them elders uh, in different parts of Scripture there at Ephesus. And so as he's kind of, a, kind of thinking about that, you know, for Titus, he says your, your job is to appoint these people at these churches that you go to. For Timothy, he just says if somebody desires to be an overseer, it's a noble task and kind of goes through the qualifications. For a deacon, kind of likewise, and then explaining, you know, what the qualifications or what the characteristics should be of those that serve. And so he doesn't really then say like, okay, and this is how they should carry out their duties and how often they should meet. Because then you kind of come up with questions from that, you know, when you kind of understand well, it seems like Paul's writing a letter and he mentions these types of people. So what does that mean? You know, so you start to ask questions about like, well, what does that look like? So just some questions I kind of came up with was, you know, so how should we as a church select these overseers? Or should we select, you know, um, again, for Timothy, how did, did the Ephesians self-select? Uh, but for Titus, for other places, he selected them. Question they should ask. Um, how long should they serve in that capacity? Is that a role that they're in and that's just how they're described? But is it something that they no longer serve in that capacity? <clears throat> how many should be selected? Uh, is it you meet those qualifications and then everybody who does, you know, that's that. Uh, how often should they meet? As far as like, should they meet regularly, like as far as a schedule or only when issues uh, dictate it? Should they be compensated for what they do? Uh, who should lead them? Should there be somebody who, you know, oversees the leading of the group or is it just like anyone step in? Uh, should they have teaching duties in the church? Um, as for deacons, are they to be identified as such? Meaning like you are a deacon or is he just describe those that are just functioning in a role? If so, what distinguishes one person who serves from another? Uh, how many should there be? Should they be meeting regularly with each other? And does someone oversee them? And I'm sure you can come up with a whole bunch of other questions that kind of come out. And that's how, you know, churches try to, like, navigate within these things and say, like, well, what kind of rules or regulations, what kind of um, guidelines do we put in place coming from what Scripture says? If you look at, like, the early church, the early church um, uh, had both elders and deacons, meaning... Those that had written letters for, so outside of scripture, what do we see from early church writers? So this is kind of getting into the second century, so like the hundreds um, AD to the 200s AD. Uh, what do we kind of see? And again, information is a little bit sparse, but you typically see that things that are mentioned are describing those that are overseers or elders and deacons. And that they were appointed or set forth, and then they were brought forth before the entire church and approved by the entire church. Um, I think that's kind of in one, one person's writings that that was described. By the end of the second century, so the late 100s, um, and again, this is about 150 years if you want to think after Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, most churches operated under a single ruling elder. So you can kind of think like after, you know, Several generations, it went from kind of a group to a single ruling elder. And uh, this likely happened because um, functionally, when you start having different uh, political leaders in, 
they then want to hear from groups that are represented collectively. And so sometimes to go to these kind of synods or kind of meetings, um, one person from a church might go as like a representative. And then sometimes they were understood as that leader. And so uh, eventually that kind of came into a, um, a group called a presbytery, which was kind of different leaders overseeing in an area of churches. And so, and then today we have a whole bunch of different structures and we can go over that, but I'll save that for uh, another time, a different study, a different, a different thing. But I want us to kind of think again, like, so how does, how do they function? And maybe I just asked a question. Why do you think it went that, that way? Why do you think it went from maybe a group of leaders to a single leader? Okay, persecution. Why would you, why would you say persecution? Okay. 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 Yeah, and I would say that's definitely that's definitely could be true, um, depending on the area. So yeah, that's that could play a part in there. Yeah. And you have this idea, sometimes the term bishop was, is used, is, is translated from this, this idea of a presbyter or, a, you know, an overseer, um, where, again, translated in some versions, but then in some church uh, denominations, this term bishop is used, and you have kind of like the bishop or this single kind of ruling elder um, in one of the churches, then there's a hierarchy. Uh, it almost came where, like, Rome, the bishop over Rome was kind of seen as, like, uh, the figurehead for all of the churches, um, just because, why Rome? They were the poor leaders at the time. Yeah, so that was where the, the political capital was, right, for the Roman Empire was in Rome, and so that church... Um, would have had kind of that connection. It would have been like for us, like a church in Washington, D.C. might have some more political clout for there. And so the bishop in, in Rome kind of got an elevated status. And then over time, that bishop of Rome ended up being considered, you know, somebody who was kind of an overseer of all the other bishops. And what do we call this person now? The Pope, yeah. And so that's where kind of the Catholic Church, you know, kind of, branched off and, and kind of moved in, in that direction. Um, and if you think about it, like there is some ease about having one person uh, kind of being a spokesman um, for the church. There is some ease that comes out of like one person kind of making decisions and, and for another group in a hierarchy. Um, but what happens over time when there's just one person? Yeah. But then you start losing that one perspective, and, and you're not bringing in different perspectives. You know, that's why I think 
feel here, the model we have with its plurality of elders is a more effective leadership model getting credit for one strong party. This is the way it's going to be. Everybody kind of falls in the shrine. More accountability. Yeah. Yeah, and so while there's some ease in decision-making, there is the ability in this position of this leadership and even power and influence to also become corrupted. And I think it's kind of, especially when you kind of think, like, I don't think the intent of the Catholic Church was to go towards a pope, um, but that's just kind of how it went. And when you kind of see all the corruptions that happened in the Middle Ages that the Protestants protested against, the Reformers kind of pushed back against, that was kind of what you saw. And so there is maybe more accountability in a group. There's also sometimes less accountability in a group. So you have to kind of actually like, in the sense where uh, you get this idea of kind of groupthink and not everyone thinks that everyone else is taking care of it. So there is some kind of leadership things of like, well, how do we make sure that we do that? And so anyway, um, that we're, get, we're getting, you know, can get a little sideways on, on all of the details of how that, that looks. But I think it's kind of good for us to think, you know, um, this is the way we do it. Why do we do it? This is the way we have an order of worship. Well, why do we do it? Hopefully we can come up with scriptural reasons for the things that we do. And uh, also it gets beyond scripture for um, what is honoring to Christ and also puts us in a position to um, follow him more closely. And we'll get to that more in a second. Do you have anything else to say, Greg? Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so all of these things, but, you know, you're like, it was still in the early church, so Paul never got, got to that point to say that. Although there were things that even, you know, he did address when it came to, like, identifying single people. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, or even when he's thinking, like, when I'm gone, right, he's wanting to kind of build up, you know, when he's speaking to the elders, as he's going to Jerusalem, is going to be arrested. In some sense, that pulled him out of the game, and he's kind of telling the elders there in Ephesus, like, hey, this is the expectation that you have to oversee the church. But I want us to pause real quick and look at a couple passages of Scripture, and then we'll finish up 1 Timothy 3. Because I want us to kind of think again, like, we have kind of these two different, like, identi- you know, identified groups in, um, in 1 Timothy 3. But I also want us to understand that there's different roles within the church. Uh, so if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm just going to read these real quick. But I just want us to kind of have this, like, as, like, you know an understanding of how this kind of all like plays out. And there's several passages where we see kind of this idea of um, different roles, different responsibilities, different giftedness within the church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but he says the same spirit. And the varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given 
through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit, to another, faith by the same spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So again, his focus is on, hey, there's these giftedness in the church. It's becoming an issue within your church body. And I want you to know that there's a lot of different gifts within the body of Christ, but it's all from one spirit. And again, this idea of unity kind of plays itself out, but just kind of in a different way. And verse 27, if you skip down, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed or placed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I'll show you a still more excellent way. Interestingly, though, in this, while he uses the word like gifts of service with that same word of kind of deacon, he doesn't mention anywhere of like overseers and elders. But that's not the point and that's not the focus within what he's talking about. But he's talking about to the entire church as he's writing that everybody has some sort of responsibility within the church. Your responsibility or what you're doing within the church is played out by how God has equipped you through the spirit. And he's kind of given a whole variety of different ways. I want you to flip to Romans 12. We'll see how that, that looks. And then we'll finish at Ephesians 4. And I'll just kind of like lay out a couple of these as he mentions them. But I just want us to kind of see the way that he mentions this. So normally this would be kind of if somebody taught on spiritual gifts and, you know, what are your spiritual gifts? Like this is kind of how it's seen. In Romans 12... Verses 3 through 8. Again, he's talking to the Roman church. He's never been to the church in Rome. As far as the leadership structure, we're not sure what the leadership structure is. But he's, again, talking to them about, you know, practical matters as he gets towards the end of his letters. And verse uh, 3, he says, For by the grace of God, uh, given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. We've seen that word sober judgment um, as seen as a quality of, of an elder, of an overseer, uh, sorry, of a deacon, and even a deacon's wife. Um, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members uh, of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service, that word is diakonos, that word for deacon, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So again, um, similar words that were used in 1 Corinthians, some different words that were used from 1 Corinthians. And Paul is just, again, explaining to them, um, as you are equipped, then do the things that God has equipped you to do. Not everybody fits in one role, some, you know, in, in one uh, capacity. And so, though, carry out the gifts as you've been given. All right, so in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, right? 
Paul is talking to <laughs> Timothy, who's in Ephesus. So let's see how it kind of looks. He doesn't mention anything about uh, the elders or overseers there in Ephesus. But his focus, again, when his if you read the intro, is to the church body as a whole. And so um, in Ephesians 4.11, and there's other places we could go, but just kind of narrowly focused, Paul writes, he gave... The church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And their role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So, who is, Paul, who is God given to the church in order to keep us of one mind, of one focus, of one, um, one desire and one heart and unity, it's different roles. And Paul says, first he gave the apostles. So, right, the apostles were Jesus' disciples who were sent ones or emissaries or messengers. Um, and so that group doesn't seem to, um, they don't seem to be necessary um, in the functioning of the church body uh, anymore, but they were around during the time that Paul was writing this to the Ephesians. The second, he says, the prophets, and the prophets were those who spoke direct revelation. And then you get a whole lot of baggage when we talk about prophets and what they did. A lot of times they talk, spoke about things that were going to happen as deemed by the Lord, and there were those who were um, had the gift of prophecy. We would say the prophets not only declared knowledge of God from the past, but also knowledge of God about the future. Um, as far as their role within the church, you know, that would take a whole nother lesson as far as what that looked like. But that was the second group that Paul names as far as the prophets, those who spoke direct revelation. Third, he uses this group to describe the evangelists. Evangelists is, again, a word that comes out of those who proclaim the gospel, a proclaimer of the gospel themselves. And so, um, you know, mentioned here is a description uh you know, of a, of a particular group, we only see it in a couple other places in Scripture where we see this term evangelist. There was this guy, Philip the Evangelist, who was in Acts, and uh, we know we think that it's the same person that went and preached to the eunuch, um, but also he was described as Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21. And then interestingly, at the end of, of 2 Timothy 4, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy at the end of, you know, Paul's thinking that this is going to be the end of his life. But he says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Get that word again, sober-minded. You know, that keeps coming up. Um, Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That diakonos, that service. Um, You see that Timothy's role is specifically called out as this is your work is as an evangelist. Which also leads us, while we all should be proclaimers of the gospel, there are some who have a distinct role as one who is a proclaimer of the gospel. The next role we see is shepherds. So our term pastor comes from a, from a word that is a, a, a Latin word from the word shepherd. So pastor isn't directly within scripture or translated within scripture, but pastor comes from the translation of the word for shepherd. And so, obviously, a shepherd of sheep, but then used in the body of Christ as a shepherd over the, che- uh, over the, the church as well. And then, finally, teachers. Teachers are those who teach. Um, and so, possibly, though, that shepherd and teacher is a compound word, uh, meaning a shepherding teacher. Someone who oversees a flock 
and also uh, teaches the flock as well. And so Paul's point, though, was that there was, again, different functions within the church, in the gathering church, to equip the church to mature followers of Christ. Why? Because they're facing this dark world, and they need to do it together in love and unity. When we see 1 Timothy 3, he's kind of describing some different roles within the, you know, some, some different groups within the church, those who oversee... And so the overseers, their big, their big role, kind of coming from that, that term, are those that would protect the church from errant teaching. And we'll see that in just a second, kind of how Paul finishes this chapter. And then the deacons, or the ministers, right, were those who carry out any of the tasks within the church, those who are serving within the church. And how can a person serve? Well, we've seen in all these different passages, you can serve in a whole variety of ways, in hosts of ways, individually. What does it look like as far as a a deacon or a minister? Again, all these questions kind of come up. Is that a set group? Is that a set, like, office? Is that a set role? Why do they have qualifications? And... You know, where does that function within those qualifications in also what people do within the body of the church? We might wrap that up at the end. So, um, let's uh, finish out chapter 3 before getting too off, off topic. But it's kind of just interesting how Paul uses these, these terms uh, within, within the, uh, the church itself. And we'll kind of see the focus that Paul wants them to have, right, as he's uh, awaiting to come to Timothy specifically. So in verse 14 of of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Alright, so if we see 14, what is the goal that Paul ha- that he wants them to, to know? Actually, verse, so verse 15. What's the, what's the goal? Okay, yeah. Right. If I'm if I'm delayed, right, I want you to have it in writing so that you know how one ought to behave. So that word behave is how you live or conduct your life, how you act and associate with others. Why is behavior or if you think that idea of conduct important within the church? Okay, and you see that in First Corinthians specifically, he says that you know where God is a God of order, and so when he specifically talks about how people conduct themselves within the church and the way that they carry themselves, that it needs to be done in an orderly way. So when you have an order of worship, there's some things that come along with that that, that are taken out of Scripture. Why else that it, would Paul be um, wanting to emphasize behavior within the church? Okay. Okay. So behavior is what's in your heart, and what else? Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. 
Okay. And, you know, finally, again, what's the goal of the church, right, that Paul wants for the church? As far as, like, how they, you know, conduct within each other is to, to be united. And so where, the way that we carry ourselves is important in, under, in order to be able to, um, to be united, right? One of the things that we looked at that kind of, like, flowed, you know, kind of led up to what we're talking about in Philippians 2 and Ephesians 5 is this idea of submission, right? We, we, out of love, we submit to one another um, in, in order to uh, achieve unity within the body, within um, a marriage, within a family, within a workplace. We see all these things and how they kind of are carried out. And so Paul wants iron to sharpen iron. And so he's going to spend the next couple chapters in First Timothy kind of outlining what it looks like. He's saying, you know, Timothy, these are specific things that I want you to do as a servant of the gospel. I want, you know... Older men, how they are looked at, or the elders, how they are looked at, and younger women, how they behave with older women, and widows, and all of these kind of different groups, how behavior kind of manifests itself within the church um, is important in order to, again, represent Christ, but be able to achieve this idea of unity within the church. And so how does Paul describe the church in verse 15? He uses, he uses several different terms. What's the first term we see? What's that? Okay. Uh, so he says, first, the house of God, right? Going back just previously where an overseer must be able to oversee his household, and can, you know, because then how could he oversee um, or manage to be able to manage his or steward his um, household well, because how can he manage the house of God? Paul just uses that term again. That is, is the house of God, the church of God, is the gathering of people, and it is the house of God, and we are all individual members of it. And then he kind of repeats this where he says where it's the church of the living God. Why do you think he uses that adjective, the living God? Because he'll use that again later on in Scripture, of the living God. Why is that important, especially in the context of um, Ephesus or even just, you know, any of these churches here? Okay. Yeah. And if you've traveled and maybe gone to like large cathedrals, uh, you know, architecturally impressive, you might walk into that church and you feel something different. It almost feels like there's like they're not worshiping a living God. That this is a God of someone else's time, but not the time of the people here. And so Paul is reminding them, right, that this is uh, not only the house of God, but the church of the God who is living and breathing and, and there for us in our midst. And so that is uh, something that. Um, he wants them to understand. And so how we serve within the church and how we love one another, God cares about all of those things. And so he also cares about how we act with one another because we are ambassadors. And even Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And then what else does he describe about the church? 
Okay. So the ESV says a pillar and a buttress of truth. Did you say, is yours different? Does yours say support? Pillar and support, okay. Yeah, and these are all kind of similar terms, and I guess it would be like what you would, what you would understand. So a pillar is, and if, if in that day, you know, even at the, the Temple of Artemis, there would have been, I think, a hundred and something pillars, like columns, that would have upheld uh, the structure. So it's a single support uh, that holds something up is this, this term for a pillar. Um, why is that a good descriptor of what, the church is, or a pillar of truth. Well, they know truth What's that? The world yeah. And so if you think of kind of a pillar, meaning like one single support, there is one single support or pillar of truth. There is only one truth. And so exactly how you described it, right? Even within our world today, with multiple worldviews, and in Paul's day it would have been multiple um, pagan uh, styles of worship, right, that there is one church to proclaim that truth. That is what unites us, right, is that truth that we proclaim. And so we should remember that as we live within this household of God. The other thing is the buttress or support. You can think of a buttress in a couple different ways. So a buttress is usually like, when it's translated that way, is usually like a support wall um, that is to hold up, you know, kind of, uh, a solid structure. It could also be thought of as like a foundation to uphold, you know, a structure built on top of it. But it's it's more of a larger uh, structure that supports or holds up something else. So why is that a important uh, distinction when you're thinking about truth? Keep going. <laughs> okay. Well, so you got, again, you have this idea of this one truth being upheld by like a one pillar of truth. And then there's not only this like single support, but it's also like if you think of kind of a support wall or foundation, it kind of maintains the stability of that truth, right? So it's not only we proclaim the singular truth, but we maintain the truth. We're preservers of the truth, um, as you would say it, right? The eroding of the church is the eroding of the truth we proclaim. So if the church, you know, the way that we behave, the way that we conduct ourselves, it erodes at the truth that we proclaim. So we have to be, you know, um, we, what is probably like the one um, biggest, um, I don't know, uh, thing that's levied against the church? Those that are Christians. What's like, what was the accusation that people throw against those that are Christians. This idea of hypocrisy, right? And even like when you see someone like that, maybe that's in a leadership role, like whether it's you know, in the church or outside the church, but they, they proclaim to be a believer, but their conduct doesn't follow that. It kind of says like it almost like erodes like the truth. They, like I wish they just wouldn't say that, right? Because the way they're behaving and the way they're, they're acting and the role that they're in actually is kind of doing a disservice to Christ. So we don't shy away from the fact that we are sinners. We're truthful about that. But we, we have to be also aware of this idea of hypocrisy, 
right? So we want to make sure our conduct reflects what we believe and how we love one another and how we conduct within the body of church is important for that. Um, and so this is important in leadership because there are times that we fail to be forthright in a loving and understanding way because sometimes we may be worried about what others may think. But it's important for that to happen because we as a church are a supporter of the truth that we proclaim and uphold it, and our conduct can erode that. It doesn't mean that the truth is invalidated, but it can weaken that claim or, or proclamation of truth. So then Paul then comes and describes, so what is that truth that, that he is describing? He says it in verse 16. What's the words he used to describe the truth in verse 16? What's that? A common confession. Okay, so he does say that. What's the, what's the words that he uses right before that? He says, great indeed is this what we confess. The mystery of godliness. He uses that term, you know, and if we looked in, uh, you know, right before in Ephesians 4, he uses that term, this idea of this kind of mystery that has been revealed um, to us. This idea, and, and the mystery kind of comes in, he, he kind of lays it out in this confession about what they, they all hold. But this idea of godliness, right, is, um, or the mystery of godliness is, is, is who Christ is and who Christ was. And the fact that this Christ lives within each one of us. And the word for godliness is the same root word as the word dignified which describes how overseers must behave with their children, how deacons are described, and how deacons' wives are described. And so here it's used in a term, you know, to kind of show like piety and devotion towards God, but how others will see your conduct in that respect. Um, And so Paul admits or confesses, right, that there is this mystery to this truth that we proclaim and then how it resonates out through our actions, And so we can kind of like marvel at all of these ideas and the mystery of like how it all works out is kind of, again, something that's hard to fathom. But it's this mystery that was long ago like foretold in what would be this Messiah that's coming. Now we understand what this mystery is. It doesn't mean that it's you know fully understood by us, but it's this mystery that um, is now known. But even there are some things that have elements to it that are still not fully known until, you know, <laughs> until we are face-to-face with Christ. And so what's the first one that, that is described in this confession? Okay, so manifested in the flesh. So that, that God became man, right? He lived and he breathed and he performed miracles. The apostles saw it. And all of these things are something that we proclaim that Christ not only was, was a person and that he lived in history. Um, and so that, that is whom we worship. What's the second? Okay, vindicated in the spirit. And there's a couple of different like ways to kind of take that phrase. But that word vindicated is, is, means to be righteous in his spirit. So, to be righteous in his spirit, he's the only one that is righteous. Why is he the only one that is righteous? 
Yeah, he was sinless, and so he was perfect. So we proclaim that Christ came in the flesh, but through the Spirit, right, was uh, maintained perfection. What's the third thing? Yeah, seen by angels. And so we can think of the, this as not only um, the elect angels, but also the fallen angels. So both angels and demons knew him. And how do they respond to Christ? Yeah, so with reverence, or you could even say kind of on the idea for demons, was they feared him, right? Uh, whenever he came in contact. So, you know, Paul brings in this kind of not only physical aspect, but also this supernatural aspect as well. What's the next thing? Okay, so priests are proclaimed among the nations. So beyond the walls of, you know, the, the beyond Jerusalem, we're kind of, you know, and beyond Israel or even Galilee and Nazareth where, you know, Jesus was from, the, this man, this God, this person who is, was perfect has been proclaimed and preached towards all the nations, Ephesus being one of those, uh, one of those nations. And then what's the next one? Yeah. Going back again, you know, both of those ideas going back again to the Abrahamic covenant is that there would be this worldwide blessing through the seed of Abraham, through this Messiah. And now we know that Gentiles were worshiping Jesus. Again, those in Ephesus would be able to, uh, to, to understand that clearly because they are recipients of the gospel. And then finally, what, what was said? Taken up in glory, that Christ awaits us in heaven. And so when we kind of pause and think, like, why do we gather as a church, right? It's to remind ourselves and to share with others this truth, this mysterious truth. You know, why do we do the things that we do? It's hopefully to um, be able to share who Christ is and to be able to give people an understanding of who Christ is and what it means to worship Christ, but then also for ourselves to be equipped not only for this morning, but also for the rest of the week and the rest of our lives as we take this mysterious truth out into the world that um, seems to be following other truths. So I wanted to leave us kind of with one last thing as we kind of think, you know, we've looked at in Acts with... Um, uh, how kind of, you know, the different, um, the church kind of maybe evolved within the, the book of Acts, even looking at Paul's proclamation to the Ephesian elders there in, uh, you know, Acts chapter 20. We're looking at, uh, we looked a little bit at his letter to the Ephesians and just some of the roles that we've seen, and we've looked at different passages within there. We see in 1 Timothy 3, kind of how he's telling the church like there you know needs to be those that are helping lead and guide the church and he kind of talks about the qualifications of those within the church and I want to kind of give us kind of a final snapshot of what it looks like at the church of Ephesus so I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 and so Paul you know so we see uh not Paul um you know, John is writing this revelation, and it's probably about 25, 30 years after um, Paul's letter to Timothy. And we see that you know, Jesus Christ has this message uh, 
through the Apostle John to these different churches. And so one of those churches, the first church he talks to is the, the church in Ephesus. And so in, in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, verse 2, what does Jesus commend the church at Ephesus for doing? Even 30 years after, let's say, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Yeah. And so they, and and what is it else that they, they told them to do, right? You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false, right? That was one thing that specifically, you know, we've seen when Paul was speaking to the, the, the Ephesian overseers, right, when he's gone, there will be those that were going to come in and that will be false teachers. You need to kind of oversee and guard the church for that. And they are doing that. Well, what's one thing that, so they are preaching the truth. They're also um, being able to refute uh, wrong doctrine or errant doctrine. But what's one thing that, that um, Christ is saying that I, he has against them? Okay, so they've abandoned the love that they had at first, and he asked them to repent of that. And so I think it's the, the, the goal in the, of, of any church is to kind of think, you know, that is our primary, uh, that is our primary goal. We can all, sometimes, and sometimes it's even be said of, of evangelical or maybe even more like reform-minded evangelical churches such as ourselves, that we can be so heavy on truth, but we neglect the love and so I think that's kind of always the thing that we want to put before us is that while we continue to preach the truth, that that is something that uh, befell the, the church in Ephesus and that we always need to evaluate and kind of pull away from and say, how are we doing as far as uh, our love for one another and our love for Christ? And so, you know, we, we would hope that, this uh, warning to the uh, Ephesian church never is placed upon us. So to kind of summarize, right, we have the, the church is to be united in preaching the truth of Christ, that wonderful mystery of who he is and what he's done. It's to be protected by overseers, mostly older men, and served by men and women who have various gifts and talents but use them to build up the body of Christ. These men and women are not to be identified by their abilities but by their character, right? A ch- church who puts character first will be well served. 
So, any questions that you have in the last few minutes or final thoughts? I know we kind of covered a lot of ground, but um, I wanted us to kind of just have a big perspective on what Paul's saying, not only to the church here in Ephesus on leadership, but even some different roles within the church. Well, yeah, for like what it looks like to manage your household well. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So. Well, and, and Yeah, in, in, in Titus, he, he uses the term that his children are uh, believers or faithful, we talked about that, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so you kind of have like this, you know, those are, those are, are terms that kind of even have a, a more extreme sense to it. So but they should always say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, right? No, so... But I mean, no, no. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean we have a higher view of those elders. These are both mere men specifically gifted by the same spirit we're all gifted with. That all of us play an important part in the functioning of the church. We're gifts you know, on a lay level are no less distinctive or valuable than the gifts that they're provided to serve their role. So we just have to guard how we view ourselves and how we view those men and always knowing Christ is Christ's church. Mm-hmm.
<laughs> we'll do it. We can do, we can do one-on-one calls, though. So, yeah, and, and I'll be honest, like, I have even much more that I, I wrote down and said, like, you know, and, uh, but I do want us to think, right, we're also doing it within how faithful we, we are within our church. When you think of other churches and their leadership structures, you know, if you think of even the Presbyterians, like, they view these passages in just a different light. Some of it is within the historical context. We also view it within our context um, of, you know, when I ask the question, is this the right way to do an order of service? We view it within the context of even um, the, the freedom we have within our country to be able to uh, dictate how we run our church, right? Because in some places, um, you know, the church is outlawed. Uh, in some other places, the church is regulated. And so you could almost say even outlawed. Um, and so how uh, leadership manifests itself is going to be different within those contexts. Um, even historically, you would even see like the reformers had different contexts. The church and the state were almost the same. And so how these kind of play out, but those, those areas that are left unsaid in Scripture are left unsaid in Scripture because I think Christ is giving us the ability to um, dictate those things again, to be able to most proclaim the glory of Christ uh, within the body of Christ that we have, within the states that we're in, within the nations that we're in, and uh, to be able to do so with love and submissiveness. Anyway, we'll end it there.